Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Right to Read Initiative. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Josh King, who is a teacher in Quebec, Canada. And today we're going to be speaking about his journey to the science of reading. Welcome, Josh. How are you today? I'm great. How are you, Dr. I am well, thank you. And we also have a co-host this morning, uh, my daughter, Margaret. Do you want to say hi, Margaret? No? Little hi, shock. Margaret. Hi, Margaret. All right, Josh. Well, I want to go back to the beginning. Well, not the very beginning. But you graduated high school. At mm -hmm. that point, did you want to be a teacher? Well, I would say I always wanted to be a teacher ever since I was young. I was one of those very annoying siblings that would uh, force my other siblings to, to do school in the summertime. Um, so there's always got to be one, right? And uh, so I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, it was just, you know, it was never set as an option for me. Um, a lot of a lot of my education was kind of planned out uh, quite early on for me. And I kind of just went with the flow for a very long time. But fortunately, eventually, circumstances led me back to doing what I feel like, um, you know, I'm really passionate about and, and kind of uh, built to do is to teach. Wonderful. So out of high school, what did you do? Where, where did you start? Well, I went to a, a health science program. Mm -hmm. uh, and the plan was to go into the medical sciences. Um, I feel like even early on, I felt like the day-to-day -day job in medicine, being in a, in a clinic or in a hospital was probably not for me. So at that point, I started trying to steer myself towards um, either research or administration. Um, but that that whole process took a while. So I actually started taking two undergraduates simultaneously. Uh, one was a, a business undergrad and the other one was my health science um, honors program. So it took me a lot longer because of, of that route. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not always the most direct route, but uh, it's the journey that makes it <laughs> plan, right? So when you started your education degree, what type of education program did you take? Was it like a high school one or? Yeah, it was It was uh, the consecutive programming. So I got in right at the last year that it was, um, it was only a one-year program mm -hmm. in Ontario. And uh, I, I really feel like that was probably one of the impetus that got me across that finish line of making that decision for myself to go into teaching. Because when I, when I researched uh, the course, it, it was becoming a two-year course the mm -hmm. next, the following year. So I think that lit a, lit a fire under me to, that I had to do what I needed to do to convince the other stakeholders in my life at the time mm -hmm. that this was the right plan. And um, I took uh, science. I was, I believe, yeah, junior intermediate science as my specialist, which was my first shock of the education um, field because coming from a health science background, I thought I'd be able to take any type of science uh, specialist 
that I would like. And actually I preferred to take math. Yeah. But apparently at that time I found that, you know, in education, a lot of courses that are clearly science and math related courses are just not counted as such. So statistics is not counted as math, uh, chemistry, organic chem is not counted as science. So it was very bizarre to see that. And I think that was probably one of my first clues that our industry was not organized the same way as let's say engineering or, or, um, health sciences or medicine. So uh, I ended up being a junior intermediate specialist in um, for science. That kind of amusing, just because it's so similar to myself. So my first degree was actually in computer science. And then when I went to, you know, apply for my bachelor's of education, um, computer science wasn't a teachable subject. And because I didn't have beginning math courses, but I had third and fourth year math courses that I still needed to take a basic math course to prove that I could do uh, basic math. Um, You know, the the combinatorics, the linear algebra, binary math, it it just didn't compute to understanding basic addition and subtraction, I suppose. That's what I hear, yeah. So I I, I can totally relate to that. Like, hey, wait a minute. What's wrong? Uh, But at the same time, now I understand it. But, you know, the right to read initiatives mainly focused on reading. But I think when you have those advanced math classes, it doesn't mean you know how to teach it. Right. and understand the basic concepts at a level that you need to be when you're working with young children. Exactly, I agree. <laughs> so going in as a junior intermediate science educator, uh, did you have any support or courses related to, to reading and literacy? Reading and literacy. So I mean... Um... In teachers' college, I would say, and I, I, how do I say this artfully? Um, I feel like I, I feel like the emphasis in my one-year programming, and maybe now that it's a two-year program, it's it's a lot different. Maybe there's a lot more time for a lot of the the kind of course material that would help you in the field. Mm-hmm. But I believe that my, my courses were very disparate in where we, we looked at just the theory of education itself. So mm-hmm. you got Piaget and like constructivist theories com- compared to functionalist theories. And so we did some of that. And that was interesting, um, writing essays on, on that content. I think I had a lot of good professors when it came to those kind of courses. But of course, knowing that will, will has zero zero to do with anything you'll do in a classroom and then a lot of my other programming in my one-year course seemed to really focus on teaching specific specific uh, teaching strategies or methodologies that were geared towards engagement and there wasn't really a talk about why these strategies were the ones that were picked to teach 
the, this cohort. And there was never a talk about the research behind education and teaching, which I was floored by coming from my background. It was a lot of, uh, let's look at, we'll spend you know three days looking at this teaching strategy and then three days looking at this one. And the way it was being taught was not even procedurally. It was, we're actually going to do the activity. We're going to do the, the cutting and pasting. We're going to create the word searches. We're going to do the jigsaw so that you can, I'm, I'm thinking that the theory is to see it from the student's perspective. Um, but I feel like there's not a focus ever on outcomes. So I didn't know why pick a carousel over a jigsaw when it relates to outcomes mm -hmm. or what context is this best for? Uh, what grade level of student does this work best in? I, I feel like we looked at so many types of teaching strategies and there was, wasn't enough time to cram them all in because we got to do a practicum. Mm -hmm. um, it was, it really felt like we want to show you what, what it looks like to do this in a classroom so that when you get to your practicum, you can just basically imitate what you saw us doing as a group without any knowledge behind um, why this strategy is effective and for whom. Yeah, so it's really like the choose your own adventure of, of teaching. <laughs> um, it, it? So how did that work when you went into your practicum? Did you feel prepared? Did you realize what you should do from the start or was it that moment of sink or swim? Um, I think it was a little bit of all those things. I think for me, it was a little bit different because I, um, I always got my teaching fix ever since I was young because I became a tutor at a very, very young age. That was basically how I afforded my childhood lifestyle because I was not a kid that had parents that would give them um, any exposable income. So um, I had already had a lot of experience, not just teaching the, the, the material, uh, obviously one-on-one, -on -one, I assume would be very different than a classroom. But I also had already had a little bit of experience in seeing what students came to me uh, in order to, to, to learn mm -hmm. based on their experience in the classroom. So I already at a very young age got to see where the classroom was starting to, to, to find the gaps. Now I would say find the gaps at then, but now we're also understanding that possibly how we go about our practice might be creating some of those gaps. So um, I really looked at that as being my bread and butter when I was a tutor. I'd be like, okay, they never get this right. So I am gonna, my pitch is I can get you to know fractions in two weeks, mm -hmm. um, or I can get you to do long division in two sessions. And uh, so I feel like having that comfortability of having uh, been in the practice of teaching one-on-one -on -one for so long, I didn't have any reservations about being in the classroom right at least not related to content my reservations in the classroom and where i felt the least prepared and actually 
somewhat aggrieved at times was the other 90% of teaching that has to do with you're servicing the public and all of the other aspects of being in a classroom that, 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 that come in front of the curriculum because if they're not solved, um, you'll never make it to the curriculum. So classroom management, well, 30 students. What happens when you have students that come in hungry? What happens if you have students that report some sort of abuse? Uh, what happens when you have to take your students uh, to a different site? And what is the supervision rules around? Like all of that was terrifying for me. Mm -hmm. I think I probably had a reoccurring team almost every night when I got my full-time teaching job that I took my students on a, a field trip and one of them went missing. Um, so I would say that I never felt um, issues with the content coming in the classroom. And it was for two reasons. One, I already felt comfortable teaching students content. Second one was I had already made up in my mind some part, part of the way through my instruction in teacher's college that I was probably going to abandon everything I was being taught and just get a feel for what made sense in the classroom when I get there. And, and I probably feel like that, that that's where the split is for most people that, that go through um, teacher's college, at least back then. I don't know what it is like now. Um, there's a sense that they're either being given the tools and they're gonna work those tools, or they're either gonna abandon them and default back to the way they were taught. Mm -hmm or to something that for whatever reason is comfortable. For me, it was because I was a tutor that was gonna be what was comfortable for me. Right. Now, at any point, were you alerted to the fact that the students coming into your classroom couldn't necessarily read and understand what they were reading? Yeah, that was... I would say Aside for some of some of the you know hazards, occupational hazards of teaching when it comes to dealing with the public, some of the things I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to curriculum, the most shocking thing, besides for the fact that we weren't going to use any scientific methods of getting an outcome, like it wasn't based on, as far as I could tell at that time, there, there was not, a, the authority on it was not a based on any type of outcome determinative uh, planning. I think the other shocking thing was the fact that I had so many students in my class that clearly couldn't read. But yet I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to teach them history, science, all of these other things that are all textbook based. And I'm given textbooks by my practical teacher and told that, you know, you should stick to these, you should do your planning around these. Um, I, I thought that that was so shocking and so bizarre. And I never looked at myself as being a language teacher. I assumed I'd be able to just teach math and science, which was literally the opposite of what was gonna be my experience. Um, I was shocked. I'm like, okay, I'm here to teach math and science, but I have students that, that can't read. They can't read the questions I'm giving them. Mm -hmm. um, that was shocking. And then I was, the path I was gonna take was going to be toward 
the at-risk sector for basically my entire career, which meant that what I was seeing in my practical experience in teacher in teacher's college was the tip of the iceberg. I was being shocked by something that, like I was shocked that I had five students in my class that could read out of, out of 32. But my next teaching experience, I was going to find where uh, I had probably about 20% of my students didn't know the alphabet. And about half of my students couldn't read. But then I had, I had five or six students in my class that were reading Harry Potter and like they were voracious readers and they were all in the same class. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, I'm in trouble now. Like I'm in, I don't know how to teach reading at all. Um, everyone saw my resume. <laughs> so it seems like everyone understands where we're at right now, a brand new teacher. And is this like the absolute toughest group to teach? Like, is this purposely designed that the needs are so varied? Um, like, it, it just seemed like I had, I had discovered um, the biggest challenge. A beautiful group of students. Um, you know, the rapport that we built was amazing, but feeling like I have not been prepared for this at all. And wondering if somehow what I took for my my um, my teacher college experience, maybe I missed something because this was just the need was too great here, and I was for yeah. So. Did you just put your head down and say, okay, I'm a math and science teacher. We'll forget about reading that. My, not my wheelhouse, not my responsibility. They have English language arts for that. Yeah. Or did you uh, decide to do something about it? Well, I guess we're about to spoil the story um, because I don't think I would have been here if that was the case. Yeah. Um, I felt like, well, first I, I talked to administration about it and it was made clear to me that this was just the expectation of all the all the teachers in this school, and um, and it was sink or swing. And it was like, just do your best. We hired you because we felt like you were capable, and that you had the right attitude. And uh, and that for me that was terrifying to to hear that that was the response. And um, I just said, well they're right about the attitude because I'm not going to, I'm not going to give up on these students, even though I feel like I'm not the person they need. I am just going to, first of all, and I think this probably informs my practice the most till now, even with my education company is the first thing I decided to do that next day I came in and I leveled with my students. I told them, I showed them how much education I took. I show them where I went to university and let them know I am, I am a teacher. 
I'm an OCT teacher, but I leveled them and I told them that we are going to be in this together. We are going to learn. I'm going to learn as much from you as you guys are going to learn from me because this is my first time teaching language. And, uh, and from then on, my approach was in process as much as I could um, so that when I had to make choices and changes and tweaks and really use that classroom, that first classroom as a laboratory, they would understand what I'm doing and why we're doing it. And then I'm looking for outcomes and then I was going to show them the outcomes. And um, I didn't know if what I was doing was right or wrong in that sense, being that candid with the students. Um, but I saw results. right away it, it was like unleashed something in my class because immediately the students looked at school time as like we were almost a corporation working towards an objective and i took that energy and i informed the rest of my practice now every time i have a class i tell my class that we are a corporation i give it a name and we were we build the corporation from the ground up um, because I don't know what it was about that experience. I have my, my speculations, but it's always worked. It being that making teaching in the process that transparent for the students lets them see school differently. And it seems to work best, like even better, like by multiple when you have a diversity of needs, because then the students don't look at themselves as a comparison to other, other students. Their, their outcomes aren't compared to other students. They realize that their outcomes are a part of a spectrum that if we don't all advance, then we're not successful. And I don't think there's any other way of getting that idea through to students without letting them be able to visually see the learning outcomes. Of course. So you're in this position where you realize that you're also a literacy teacher. Where do you start? Do you just trial and error? Or do you start looking to different sources out there? Um, I wish I had started just like researching a ton. Mm -hmm. I just felt like when I was in school in um, teacher's college, um, by the way, I should say I got hired straight out of teacher's college as a full-time teacher in Quebec. I'm, I was there for two years, um, and then I came back to where I grew up in Ontario. So I'm in Ontario now, um, but I was in Quebec on a, um, a First Nations reserve, and I was teaching in one of, one of the schools in the Cree schools. And uh, by far the best experience of my life. Those two years are like, they're gold. Uh, there's, if I was going to give up any two years of my life, it definitely wouldn't be those two. And uh, so what I would say is that um, in teacher's college, I already noticed that research in education was different than research in medicine. Mm -hmm. They use different language, different constraints. What I examine when I'm looking at um, 
uh, research design, which is mainly what we spent time doing was critiquing the design of research in order to analyze how much weight you should give each study. Um, when I tried to use that same practice to education, it, it kind of fell apart. It was just the design structure was totally different. The level of, of rigor that um, was used to scrutinize research was very different. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know how to evaluate research and education. And because I saw it seemed like whatever the research was saying, we seemed to be doing something very different in the classroom at any given time. And that no one really mentioned research when, when they were when they were initiating an intervention or an initiative inside the school. I just felt like, okay, let's abandon that, even though that's, that, that would be my first inclination. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I did hearken back to part of what I learned in health science. I, I hearkened back to a system called triage or leadership. It's this idea that if the need is too great for, for the capacity that you have, you've got to then evaluate all the components of, of the service and decide what can be done in any given time, how best the resources can be used under those constraints, um, and then give it like a priority, give it like a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And then try to overlap where you can. So the first thing I did was I can't really teach the way I need to teach if I have students that can't read at all. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I need to make that the focus of everything. So the first thing I did was I made all of the subjects cross-curricular. Mm -hmm. All of the subjects were now literacy. Right. So even in, in math, which was the toughest one to do, I would try to put dynamics in the math learning that were going to be complementary to whatever I was teaching in, in, in reading. Mm -hmm. And I would do that. For Let me just interrupt for a second. Can you give us um, the grade range? For science and history and everything else. So the, the first two years, those first two years, it was both grade four classes. Okay, yeah. Um, which, uh, you know, it, it was shocking for a grade four to not know the alphabet. And when I came back to Ontario in the Durham region, um, I saw a similar amount of need in a lot of the schools I worked in. I never found students that didn't know the alphabet, but functionally, they didn't have all their sounds. They didn't know how to read. So it was very little difference. And I felt like that experience that I had in my first two years, it was so, so invaluable because when I came back, back um, I felt like I had been through, you know, a super training course and I was ready for a lot of the, the cohorts that I found a lot of other teachers might be avoiding. You'd find a lot of teachers kind of moving out of the way because there's a cohort kind of moving up age by age by age. And everyone's kind of 
not happy with that group. They think that there's too much need and too much of a challenge, including classroom management and the literacy. Um, and that became my bread and butter. I felt like I was a tutor again, where I could find where the need was, specialize in that, and that would make make me have um, job security in at the time for a teacher there was just way too many Ontario teachers there was no job security but I, but I had that because I specialized in that right and I think it really highlights the need for uh, not just teaching to the curriculum but teaching to the needs of your student and the need for differentiated instruction within your classroom I mean mm -hmm. you were speaking about students who are struggling with the alphabet while you have students that are you know, going through Harry Potter. I don't know if it's anything like it is at our house, but it's that deep dive and it's Harry Potter, everything at that age. Right. So, and then, you know, one thing that a lot of people don't think about is the difference in vocabulary those kids are going to have because you have the ferocious readers that are consuming, you know, tens of thousands of words in a week. Whereas, they're reading more in a week or even three days than the other students will read in a year or two. Right. And I, and I think just the nature of that experience allowed me to see through some of the things that I, I feel become a blind spot for some practicing um, educators. One thing was you would have a student that wouldn't know the alphabet yet they speak four languages yeah and so it was very clear this student given the opportunity can learn at a very high level regardless of what the reading test shows they can learn at a very high level and when you see struggle struggling in you know math and all these different things you can clearly see that if math is being taught through literacy you can see how they're not, they're not getting the access that they need I think one of the biggest eye-opening things for me that is, I think allowed me to really put some extra gas into what I do later on in my practice was I got three months into really like beating my head against the wall, trying all different kinds of methods, testing them out, looking for outcomes myself because I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't rely on the research. So I wanted to create my own data in my class. And I got to that three month, heart and I saw some growth but it wasn't what I the goal I had set for myself or what the group had set and then one day I was teaching them and someone asked me what does the word describe means and I'm like oh what what do you mean like no she's like no what is the word describe what does that mean when you say describe so then I gave an explanation of that. And then you could see kids were kind of like, like shaking their head, like, oh, yeah, I was wondering that too. And I, and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I'm like, who didn't understand all of the times I've used this word all the time? The word describe, what it was like almost everyone in the class put up their hand. And I was like, is there other words I use that no one understands what I mean by it? And it ended up being all the pedagogical words. Describe, uh, explain um diagram like all of these words that i was just assuming from my uh, uh education journey as a student mm -hmm. 
that these have to be words that they've heard every year to get to grade four. Mm -hmm. And they probably have, but I'm finding out now that they're really figuring out what this teacher wants by other means, but my communication is not doing it. So they're, they're learning and they're making outcomes in spite of my ability, my lack of ability to communicate. Mm -hmm. And when I would see peer-to-peer -peer tutoring, how effective that was right from the hop um, and why I've kept that in my programming all my eight years of teaching, even though some of the, some of the research has conflicting opinions about same age um, tutoring, I saw so much outcomes out of that. And I think partly that those initial outcomes was, I was just a poor communicator. And I, it was a blind spot that I didn't even like, I didn't even consider mm -hmm. that I might have to explain very, very simple instructional language. And when the students figure out how to get something done and then they teach another student how to do it, they're not using the word describe or explain. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I'm wondering why those outcomes were happening so well with the peer tutoring. And it was just because, and then I realized that this was a blind spot for the whole entire staff. Like no one was aware that a lot of the students just didn't understand this language all the way up to high school. These students are getting to high school uh, and they still, their understanding of, of those pedagogical words are loose mm -hmm. at that. So they're kind of like feeling their way through the curriculum, you know, almost blind, trying to figure out each teacher they get to, what does this teacher want from me? Exactly. And why don't they just tell me straight up in the beginning, that's what they want me to do, because I can do it if they tell me what they want me to do. Exactly. I just, yeah. I don't speak their language. And uh, it's, it's about finding, finding the secrets, the, the class and the teacher that you're working with. Right. And I think it's important to take that time to learn them instead of just approaching every class uh, of students that you get, like the one you did before, or what you have as your ideal and being reactive mm -hmm. to their needs. For sure, for sure, for sure. I think, I think one of the biggest problems is when I came through Teachers College, there was a huge focus on lessons. And then, of course, lesson planning is how they're going to assess whether you're creating good lessons. And I, I think that that's actually a terrible, terrible view mm -hmm. of, of what we do in a classroom, especially for someone that's inexperienced. Mm -hmm. um, it, it sounds counterintuitive. You think someone that's inexperienced would probably benefit more from a lesson plan than someone's experience. But what I would say is that you get fixated on uh, this is the way I want to teach something. Mm -hmm. This is how I've planned before I even got to my class. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to create tiny little, you know, ramps, on ramps for any students that need support. Mm -hmm. But for one, I had to throw that logic out the minute I got my group because there was so much need so that Really, I recognize from the beginning, I'm here to service the students with the needs, mm -hmm. right? So the lesson became intervention. Mm -hmm. And then what I started to do in that, you know, the idea of triage was 
what methods can I use that will work for everybody, even though they're an intervention method? Mm-hmm. And I know that, that sounds like the opposite of individual um, individualization. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not. It's when you abandon the idea of a lesson, you get into the idea of systems in the classroom. Mm-hmm then what happens is you start building a system and you keep adding on to what works. Starting with, when I get to this point in the delivery of education and that back and forth communication that is learning, Mm -hmm. I want these students with the greatest need to be right where they need to be. I, I want to be able to approach them um, with the same level of expectations that I would have for a student that doesn't have as much needs. So I work backwards. If this is the outcome I want, what methods do I use? And how do I stack methods on top of each other with given the amount of time in a way that it specifically addresses the needs of those students and then favor the methods that also produce higher results for all of the students? Mm-hmm. For my students that are way ahead, is there a way I can create a system that still allows them to continue to go ahead as fast as they can? And that became the system I was building. And I really feel like teachers would walk away with a lot more from their profession, their their practice, if they were not creating 50 lessons and trying to fit those lessons onto each cohort they get every year but they were creating a system that is adaptable to whatever core comes in and the system changes to reflect the particular needs of that cohort. But over time requires less and less effort on the teacher's behalf. And in fact, this might be a little radical for some teachers, but I really feel like once learning gets really effective in the classroom, the teacher's in the way. Yeah. And, and every teacher should be, like, the ultimate outcome should be to get out of the way of the students and make the students, um, you know, advocates of their own education, um, centered in uh, the learning process. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean everything has to be student-centered, but the students should be centered in the learning process. They should understand and it should be transparent completely to them and they should have a voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ultimately they, they become autodidactic, like they take over the learning process. And once you've taught them how to learn, then they can decide what to learn later on. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think what you're highlighting is that need for a hybrid approach, making sure that there's that explicit nature when it's needed, but allowing some of that discovery-based learning in the maths and the sciences, because when you get a class, I, I like I can remember um, in my own teaching, you know, I had a unit planned out, but then there was this one lesson that the kids got really interested in. And at that point, I'm like, okay, well, I can go on with the, the unit that I've planned or I can shift my focus to what these kids are really interested in. It still fits within the curriculum, but it's just not my original plan. 
And, you know, even those lower achieving students in the class were so much more engaged than I think they would have been in if I had stuck with the unit. No, exactly. I agree with you 100%. In fact, I feel like on my practicum, you were asking about like, how did I feel when I first got in front of a classroom? And did I feel prepared? Well, I had a teacher that on the first day, he's just like, I hate math. I hate teaching it. I don't really particularly understand it. I just grin and bear it. And to me, that was a sigh of relief. So I'm really, I'm like, he's giving me math first, clearly. He's like, you can take math. And then he's like, I'm going to give you the subject that I hate the most, which is geometry. And that was a little bit of letdown because I'm like, ah, I don't really like, like to me, geometry is just naming and it's not really quite math. But he's like, you're going to start with that and then I'm going to slowly give you each subject. So I cre- I, I did my my um, geometry unit the way I, I wanted to do. I started adapting it to what the, the students need. And the next thing he gave me was art because that was the other thing he didn't like. And then I'm like, well, instead of creating a whole new lesson plan, the kids are obsessed with what we've created so far. I, I, I What I did was I, I got them to build a city, which we called Polyville. Mm-hmm. And they had to build it out of the shape. So they had to like uh, go into like all of the different um, properties of the shapes and we built everything. And so we, we set all the desks around in a big square and we put a big table in the middle and each student was creating parts and we just put this giant structure in the middle of the classroom. So every time they came into, they saw this masterpiece that they're all creating. Mm-hmm. And that was just a week. And then we're going to move on to, I'm going to teach art too. And I just said, well, I'm not moving this thing out of the center of the classroom. And if I'm going to do art, isn't, isn't this kind of art already? So I just built on that. And I said, okay, we're going to create characters now. So during math, you will pick your polygon. You will create a profile for your polygon. That'll be like a height, not like angles, but it would be look like a, like a bio almost. And then you'll create a a character and you'll put, and you'll draw that Mm -hmm. character. And, and then when we moved to language, it was okay. Now we're creating a storyline altogether. Mm-hmm. And it just kept rolling one subject rolled into the other into the other until I was teaching full time. And all we were doing all day was building, reimagining, writing, reading about content related to Polyville so we can create this little society. Mm-hmm. And the thing that really showed me that something was innovative here was when research, when it was recess time, the kids didn't want to go. Yeah. They're like, why don't we just keep? creating stuff let's get plasticine and create new things let's create our own little comics and i'm like well if you create your own comic you can get extra credit in in art and language and i just everything they brought that they wanted to do i would bring the curriculum to them and say well that it's here here and here so if you do it with this level of rigor so that i can assess it i will add it to your marks and when i see enough kids liking it i would just kind of make it an assignment try to pitch it to every way to everything because they're already showing me the delivery system that they want to do that. And um, that helped me out a lot when I went to the reserve because having to teach language arts and every single subject triaging for that to get the results I wanted, 
it, it built up that that muscle. So exactly as you said, it's I would invite any teacher that if you're doing math and you're doing it in units, like I spiral, so I don't really use units. But if you're doing math in units and your kids are obsessed with a unit, all math is connected. Teach the other unit within the unit you're in. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like geometry, measurement, those things are basically the same. Um, depending on how you approach it, you can add in uh, definitely numbers, sense. Uh, you can put in money very easily if you have them creating buildings and they have to figure out square footage and and price everything out. You can bring in money and finances into that. Like build on what they like um, because that's the best engagement you ever get when the kids tell you how to engage. Of course, of course. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Josh. I'm really looking forward to tomorrow where we talk a little bit more about how you bring literacy into those uh, math and science mm -hmm. lessons. And just from what you've told me today, I'm really excited to, to hear more about that. So thank you. Uh, thank you. I appreciate you inviting me on. I could talk about this all day. <laughs> <laughs>